If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 to 14. This is Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. Listen to this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people, but you've given us your word. And we pray this morning that this morning you would send us your spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would show us our sin, but more importantly, that you would show us Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. For the next two Sundays, we're going to look at Jesus' instructions to his disciples in Matthew 18. And this whole chapter is really about life together in the church. And in this section we're looking at this morning, verses 1 to 14, there's a lot going on here. And what we're going to do is we're going to take it a little out of order. We're going to start in the middle, then we're going to go to the end, and then we're going to wrap all the way back around to the beginning. So starting in the middle, we'll get back to the very beginning. There's a lot here. We're not going to hit everything. We're going to hit what I think are the most central points Jesus makes. And there's two really important things that Jesus teaches us here in Matthew 18. And the first thing is this. We must take 
sin seriously. We must take sin seriously. Think of what Jesus says in these verses. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus tells us that sin makes us liable to God's judgment. He points out that uh, those who don't take sin seriously are uh, at risk of being thrown into eternal fire in verse 8, or the hell of fire in verse 9. This is serious. This is weighty. And this helps us to see that sin is not sort of naughty fun that God has arbitrarily forbidden. Sin has only the ability, sin has only the capacity to harm and destroy us. One author talks about sin as the vandalism of God's good creation. Sin takes the good things God has made and it twists them and distorts them and ruins them. Sin is not something randomly forbidden by God for no good reason. Sin has only the ability to destroy because sin is ultimately rebellion against God's righteous rule. That's what sin is. It is us rebelling against his holy and righteous rule over the world and the universe that he has made. When we sin, we are functionally declaring our independence from God. But when we do that, we are declaring our independence from the author of life, in whom and by whom all things hold together. This is why sin can never bring life. Sin only has the ability to destroy and to harm. So Jesus tells us in verses 8 and 9 what we have to do with sin. And the thing we are called to do with our sin is to kill it. We are called as God's people to kill our sin. This is consistent with the rest of the testimony that we have in the New Testament, indeed throughout the Bible. In Colossians 3, 5, the Apostle Paul tells us to put to death what is earthly in us. We are to put to death our sin. And four times in these verses, we have the same word in the Greek that is used. Uh, And it's interesting because it's not necessarily the word you would have expected here for temptations to sin or being caused to sin. And the Greek word there is skandalon. And skandalon is elsewhere in the Bible translated as stumbling block. It is the things that cause people to sin. It is the things that cause people to stumble or to fall into wickedness. You see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 7, you see it in verse 8, you see it in verse 9. And what Jesus is saying in verses 8 and 9 is if there is anything that is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And it's interesting because Jesus isn't just saying, hey, stop sinning. Jesus is saying, figure out what in your life tends to cause you to sin and cut that off. Root out these causes of sin in your life and cut them off completely. 
Again, think of the testimony that you have later in the New Testament where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 to flee from sexual immorality. It doesn't mean manage your sexual immorality. It means run from it. Cut it off completely. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10 to flee from idolatry. Again, he doesn't mean get better at your idolatry. He's saying run away from it. Figure out the things in your life that are idols and avoid them. Run away. Similarly, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says flee from youthful passions. Flee from the desires in your heart that are destructive. Don't just get a little better at them. Flee from them. I hope you see how radical the approach that Jesus is here instructing us to do is. This is radical. Cut off the very causes of sin in your life. Friends, the gospel is not offering us a sin management program. That's not what this is. The gospel is not offering us a way to get just a little better. At our sins, as if like, hey, the day I converted, I sinned 10 times, and by God's grace, now I sin five times in a day. That's not the point. Jesus is saying the goal is not to get better at your sin or for sin to have less of a hold on you. The goal is to put sin to death, to root out the very causes of sin in our life. How do we do that? How do we cut off the very causes of sin in our lives? A couple of thoughts here. The first is this. We have to learn to be honest about ourselves. We have to learn to be honest about our hearts and about our motivations. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet writes, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have to learn to see our hearts. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in one of his books, says the primary task of the Christian life isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize it. Because sin is so twisted around our hearts, it's so easy for us to even miss the fact that we're sinning. And I think part of what Jesus is calling us to do in these verses is to realize that sin is not just bad stuff we do, it's the fact that our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are evil. Our desires are distorted. Even the good things we do, we don't do with wholly unmixed and pure motivations. Part of what it means for us to cut off sin in our lives and to root out even the causes of sin is we have to recognize and see our hearts. I believe it is theoretically possible to participate in Twitter without falling into sin and idolatry. It is not possible at this stage in my life for me to participate in Twitter without falling into sin and idolatry. If you don't know what Twitter is, uh, the Lord be with you. Um, you are in a better place than many of us. Uh, Twitter is a place on the internet that's probably the worst place on the internet, where in 280 characters, you just get to fire off one-liners at people and dismiss their arguments sort of out of hand. 
Uh, so it's a lot of arguing back and forth on Twitter. And a few weeks ago, I got the great idea that I should get on Twitter. And so I began to tweet uh, like a twit. <laughs> I was putting out the goods, too. I mean, it was, I was crushing it on Twitter for, for a couple of days. And one of my best friends, who's a pastor, called me, and he goes, Hey, Todd, uh, I want to talk to you about Twitter. It's like, okay. He said, yeah, man, you're, you need to get off Twitter. It's like, why? He's like, this is absolutely your idolatry on display for the world. I was like, you jerk. You're right. So I'm not on Twitter anymore. Now, maybe at some point in the future, I will grow to such a point that I could be on Twitter. But for now, if you see me on Twitter, rightly ask, where's your heart? Because to date, it has not been in a good place when I'm trying to be witty in front of people. He saw my heart. He helped me see my heart. I had to turn away from that sin. So that's the first thing. We have to be honest about ourselves and our hearts and our motivations. Here's the second thing I think that we see in this passage is that we have to be honest about our sin. And that's a hard thing for us to do because a lot of times we have sins that we secretly enjoy. We have sins that we like and we kind of want to nurse those sins and enjoy those sins or excuse those sins or minimize those sins. We like to say, well, hey, that sin's really not that bad. And in reality, what Jesus is saying here is that sin is destructive. That sin is damaging, and that sin is always worse than you think it is, and it's always more destructive than you're pretending it is. Sin is always tending to destroy. That's what sin does. There is no victimless sin. Even the sins that are in your mind are affecting the way you regard other people, are affecting the way you regard things in your life, and they are changing the world for the worse. Sin tends only to destruction. We have to kill sin by rooting it out of our lives. What might that look like? I read an article a few years ago, and I should confess, the guy who wrote it is not a Christian. However, he, I think, helpfully illustrates what it looks like to be concerned not only about the bad stuff we do, but recognizing that we have to cut off even the root of sin. Listen to what he says. He says, I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son, but that's not because I am an especially good and true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind, but I am also a dude who believes in guardrails, as a buddy of mine once put it. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I am having a second drink and why I am not, why I am going to a party and why I am not. I believe the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I am not a good man, but I am prepared to be an honorable one. 
This is not just true of infidelity. It's true of virtually anything I've ever done in my life. I did not lose 70 pounds through strength of character, goodness, or willpower. My character and will angles towards cheesecake, fried chicken, and beer in no particular order. I lost that weight by not fighting the battle on desire's terms, but fighting before desire can take effect. These are compacts I have made with myself and with my family. There are other compacts we make with our country and society, and I tend to think that those compacts work best when we do not flatter ourselves, when we are fully aware of the animal in us. That is a remarkable level of self-reflection. That is a person who sees motivations clearly, who understands that, like James says, that desire gives birth to sin when it goes unchecked. And I think this is an excellent picture even of the kind of things that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to recognize what in our life tends towards sin and to root out even that, that we might turn from sin into righteousness. Jesus takes sin seriously. So must we. And honestly, when I read this, I am slightly overwhelmed and terrified at the life to which Jesus is calling us. If, if this is what God wants, I am in big trouble because I don't know that I take my sin that seriously. I tend to be a bit more half-hearted, pitiful, and hopeless about my sin. So what hope do we have? As God's people. If this is what God is calling us to, what hope do we have? Jesus answers that question with a story. It's a story in verses 12 and 13, and it tells us our second thing this morning, which is simply this We must take grace seriously. We take sin seriously. We must take grace seriously. You see the story here in verses 12 and 13. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. It's a short story. Two verses. Hundred sheep, one goes away, one wanders off. The shepherd leaves the 99, goes and searches and searches and searches till he finds the one that has wandered away, brings it back to the flock, rejoicing over that sheep. Three quick things I think we can see here in this parable. And if you believe these three things, it will change your life. It will absolutely change the way you think and live. Here's the first thing. We are sheep. This is not a compliment. We are sheep. We are nature's D student. Uh, in the parable, it's not just that we're sheep either. The, the sheep we are called to identify with here is the one that wanders away. So not only are we sheep, which is not a compliment, we're not even the good sheep. 
We're not even the smart sheep that know that they need to stay together. We are the sheep who wander. This calls us to something like a humble and an accurate self-regard. We are sheep. The Bible calls us sheep over and over and over. And we get so used to that image that we don't stop to think all the time about sheep aren't really that smart. Sheep aren't that great. They're not majestic. They're not intelligent. They just fall in ditches, get rescued, and then fall back in the ditch again. That's what sheep do. We are sheep. We have to start there. Humble and accurate self-regard. Here's the second thing that we see in this brief story. God doggedly pursues the lost sheep. He doggedly and determinedly pursues the lost sheep. When that one sheep strays away, God, who is the shepherd, doesn't just cut his losses and say, hey, I'm just at 99% of where I was. He also doesn't storm around like Joe Pesci in Home Alone, muttering under his breath, looking for this sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 and goes looking because the shepherd knows sheep are prone to wander. Sheep get themselves into trouble and sheep have no ability to rescue or fend for themselves. The shepherd knows what sheep are like and he does not despise them for it. He looks and he looks and he looks until he finds the one lost sheep. Here's the third thing. What happens when the shepherd finds the one lost sheep? He's not annoyed. He's not frustrated at the effort he had to expend. He doesn't berate or beat the sheep for being like a sheep. The shepherd rejoices. Think about that. The shepherd rejoices. Let that sink in. That is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is we bring nothing to the table. We bring sin and death. We bring less than nothing to the table. Nothing would be an improvement over what we bring to the table in the gospel. God does everything. And then at the end of the day, God rejoices over us like we've done something. That is mind-blowing. We bring nothing, God does everything, and then rejoices over us like we've contributed anything to this equation. I told you at the beginning of this passage that it's about life and the church together. And it might not be immediately clear from these two things what this has to do with life and the church together, except for the fact that these two points, that we take sin seriously and we take grace seriously, these two points are in response to a question that the disciples ask. Jesus is responding to the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is best in the kingdom of heaven? How does Jesus answer? I love this answer. He grabs a kid, verse 2 tells us, like a five-year-old, puts him in the midst and goes, he is. He's the greatest. This five-year-old is the greatest kid in the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, that that can't be true. 
I mean, you've got to imagine, their minds are blown. They, they don't live in a society like ours that sort of sentimentalizes childhood and romanticizes what it means to be a developing human being. Kids were just sort of in the way until they became useful. And, and Jesus says, this five-year-old, this kid is the greatest one in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on in verses 3 and 4 and says, in fact, if you even want to be part of the kingdom, much less be the greatest, if you even want to be part of the kingdom, you have to be more like this kid. What does that even mean? What does it mean to be like a kid? There's been a lot of ink spilled over what it means to be childlike in our faith. But I think the heart of it is simply this. Kids take for granted that they have to receive things. Kids are good at receiving. Uh, one pastor notes, in all of his time as a pastor, he's never once had a kid come to him to complain about the stress of the Christmas season. Kids aren't worried about parties. Kids aren't worried about buying gifts. Kids just know Christmas means presents. I get to receive. More than that, kids don't just receive presents, but kids understand that they have to receive help. Kids, like my kids, and, and I love y'all, sometimes they ask for help before they've even tried something. Does that ever happen to you? It's like, can y'all fold your laundry? It's like, help. It's like, you didn't even pick it up. Drives you crazy. But kids realize that they need help because what adults will do when they don't know how to do something is they're going to just fake it and make a huge mess because adults want to labor under the illusion of self-sufficiency and control and competence. And what Jesus says in verse 3 is, you must turn and become like children. That word turn could also be translated Repent. You must turn away from your adultish ways and become more like kids. The point here is that the kingdom of heaven is a place where we bring only sin and God does all the work. The question who is greatest is a hilarious and nonsensical missing of the point. It would be like if they came to Jesus and said, who is the tallest short person in the world? Who is the skinniest fat person? Who is the fastest slow person or the strongest weak person? Jesus, who paid the most of everyone that got in here for free? It's a question that doesn't make sense because what Jesus is reminding us of over and over and over again here is that he is the only grounds for anything we have or do. We can boast only in Christ. In 2001, a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas was on the cover of Time magazine and the, the subtitle or the heading of the article, the heading on the cover was America's Best Theologian. America's Best Theologian. And someone went and interviewed him after this and said, what was it like for you, Dr. Howard Wass, to be described as America's Best Theologian? And his answer was the only answer he could have given. Best is not a theological category. 
Best is not a theological category. Friends, greatest in the kingdom is not a theological category. This passage reminds us that we are the community of God's people and we bring nothing. And God does everything. And then he rejoices over us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our adultish ways. We confess that we want to be competent and in control. We don't like to ask for help, and we are really, really bad at receiving. Father, give us grace to repent. Make us like children. Father, make us willing to receive. Make us willing to come to the end of ourselves and to recognize that our only hope is in Christ. Father, even now, as we come to your table, unmask our sin. Remind us of the truth of your gospel and of your goodness. Take ordinary bread and an ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the truth of what Christ has done on our behalf. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.